know, just to be blunt about it, like being a partner at like Google Ventures, a venture capital firm, that's like, that's like a very high status job to have. And so went from like, you know, having that to just being like a, a person living on a boat and like, you know, that was cool because people would be like, oh, you live on a boat. That's interesting. But like it didn't, you know, it was a, it was just a total recast of my, my self-identity. The Six Beers Podcast. This week we had John Zaratsky on. I had a blast. He was a UW student, like me and Nick are. So in the beginning we kind of got to reminisce about that, which was great before talking about all of his many successes that I hope to even accomplish a fraction of what he's done. John kept saying that he, he kept stumbling on to whatever he's doing in life, but he, he went to UW, then he went to a startup in Chicago, which got acquired by Google, and then he found himself working on YouTube's redesign. So he's, he's kind of stumbled onto a lot of great things, but uh, you kind of get nitty-gritty with that in the episode. So we hope you enjoy. The Six Beers Podcast, presented by Nick Bauman and Ashlyn Galbraith. Podcast. Uh, what do you want? Do you want to introduce the uh, the wine you're drinking tonight? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I don't have the bottle with me, but I'm totally I'm drinking a, uh, a Pinot Noir from uh, California Sonoma Coast. I think the label is uh, Vivette is the name of it. Just a super. You can maybe see through it. It's just like a super super light. Um, kind of easy to drink pinot yeah it's, a little bit it's probably a little bit nicer <laughs> than what we have um personally we're drinking a zinfandel from trader joe's not sure um sure. where it was before it got to trader joe's but <laughs> it does well for us college students so yeah that's good that's good well i um i don't think i had even tried wine when i was in college so you're like <laughs> way me that's good yeah um, and you went to you went to college here yeah. Right? I did. Yeah. Yep. Did you always kind of know that you wanted to go to Madison? No, I am. I'm not, uh, not too afraid to admit that it was actually like kind of my, it was not my primary choice. Um, I like got into some other schools that I was really excited about, but my parents like in a, in a, in a moment that I'm very grateful for basically explained to me like financially what it would mean to go to like the other schools that I was looking at were sort of like, like uh, Ivy league type of schools. And it was like, they were like, okay, you can do this. Like, we're super proud of you for getting in, but uh, you're going to have a lot of debt. I was like, Oh, interesting. And they were like, or you could go to Madison and your grandparents had been putting money away for you for like your entire life. So you could probably just pay for it and you know, you'll be good. So so I decided to do that. And like, it's, it's, you know, one of the, one of the, the patterns in my life is that like all of the great things that have happened have not been the result of like a master plan. They've always been these things that sort of happened like accidentally. Um, and going to Madison is totally one of those things. Cause like, that's where, like, if I hadn't gone to Madison, I wouldn't have met my wife. Like I wouldn't have started working at the, the Badger Herald newspaper, which was sort of like my introduction to design, um, which I kind of like built my whole career around. So it's just like all these great things happened as a result of, of going there um, that, uh, you know, I, uh, w- wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah. So you went to UW like starting in 2001. Yep. Right. Um, so obviously things are a little different now, but what was it like, I guess, for us UW students, we'd love to know what it was like to go to UW uh, back in 2001. Could you share something about that experience? Well, the craziest thing about it was that <clears throat> a week after school started, um, it was nine eleven. Oh. Um, so, and that was that was like a pretty hard time for me, but I didn't realize it at the time how difficult it was. But looking back, it was hard because I um, so I grew up in a really small town, and um, so I went to, you know decided to go to Madison, moved there, and I like 
because I grew up in a small town, I somehow got the idea in my head that I should live in the lakeshore dorms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was living in uh, Cronsage, which is like, you know, there, uh, I don't know if it's eight buildings or something like that, but there are all these like really small buildings. I'm not and, sure if you had it, if it was there at the time, but I lived in Cole my freshman year, which is also yeah. sure. Yep. Cole. Yeah, yeah. Cole was totally there. And so anyway, so, so I'm like, I'm like super far away. I'm like in this really small dorm with like a roommate who was like, fine, but like, I didn't, you know, we weren't friends. And then like, I hadn't really made a lot of friends in the dorm. Cause it's like the first week of school. And like, I had some other friends like from high school and stuff that were at Madison, but um, we'd like just gotten there, you know, it was like literally the first week of school. And then this crazy thing is happening and everybody's just like trying to process it. So I feel like the first few weeks of being at Madison, instead of being this like really joyous, amazing, amazing transition and moment were sort of like this almost zombie, like sort of sleepwalking through like what is going on. Um, and it wasn't until really my second semester of freshman year when things started to, to like fall into place a little bit, because that was when I um, decided like I'm totally on a whim. I, I applied for a job at the Badger Herald because I had like sort of been like a nerdy kid. I'd been into computers and they had a job for like, um, to do like page layout to like, you know, design the newspaper every day. And I was like, I can probably do that. I like applied for that. I got that job. And now like I had this whole new group of friends. Um, and probably more importantly, I had like a reason to basically go, um, like downtown, like, you know, like to go, I don't even know if people say that about Madison, do they downtown? They definitely do. I would say, yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, state street areas more. Yeah. But to like go from like, the lake, lake shore, <laughs> like literally like, you know, you know, ride my bike, like over the hill or take the bus or walk in the freezing cold and like get to state street and like, feel like, I don't know. I, like there was, there was like this, definitely this spark of like, oh, this is kind of what it's like to like be in a city and like be like on busy sidewalks. And I don't know, like it sounds so, like kind of dumb, but I just grew up in such a small town that to me connecting you know, that experience of having a job and like working with cool people and like being in a city setting, it felt like very grown up. And that was, I think the time when I was like, okay, like this, like, like this is going to be good. Like this is going to be an amazing, like part of my life. Um, but it took, it took a little while to get there. It's, it's funny hearing you say um, that you grew up in a small town. You're looking forward to you know, going downtown in Madison. Um, Cause I grew up in a small town about an hour south of Madison called Monroe. And I remember going into my freshman year, I knew it was going to be in the salary dorms. And I was like, all right, I cannot wait to wake up every morning, like in the middle of the city. Yeah. <laughs> and how much, how much that perspective has changed. Um, so that I'd like to ask too, for our, our fellow UW students, um, only share what you're comfortable with, but what's a, what's a crazy story from your time at UW um, that you kind of look back on as kind of a, uh, kind of a moment of your youth? Probably the, um, it wasn't like a singular moment, but it was a recurring moment that like, I just can't even imagine doing now. And it was when I was working at the newspaper. So this, you know, Badger Herald, I don't know, do they still publish in in print or is it all online now? Um, I'm sure they, I mean, they might do in print too, but mostly online. online. Same same for the Cardinal too. Yeah, but so the time when I was there, both the Cardinal and the Herald were publishing every day, and we were printing sixteen thousand copies of the newspaper, which is like <laughs> crazy. Um, and so it would, and our our deadline was midnight to get the paper done and sent to the printer. Um, and so basically, like we would work all night. So actually, first we would like go to class all day, and then like the other people. So I I like I met my wife at the Herald, and she was a reporter. And then later an editor. And so she would like be trying to get her stories done during the day. And I would be like, um, you know, I would have class and other stuff, whatever going on. And then my day would basically start at the newspaper at like four. And I would find out like, okay, what stories do we have? What photos do we have? And start to like get the paper together. And then we had to like have the paper done. We had to have the layout finished, write all the headlines, check everything out. And then it would get exported as a PDF file. like, and that had to be done by midnight. And then the file would get uploaded to the printers. And then it's the same company that prints the, the cap times. Um, and so they would like print it and they were responsible for distributing it. But like half the time we were late. So we wouldn't get it done by midnight. It would take us to like one. 
And then there'd be like a problem. And then like somebody would be calling us from the printers and then we would go out. We would like, and we'd be like, all right, great. Paper's done. Like a Tuesday. And we'd like go out and, and like the plaza was our spot. That was like the unofficial Badger Herald newspaper. So we'd go there and then like, we would stay until it closed. And then I always like the, the sort of, I mean, th that alone is just like unfathomable to me now. Um, but like, but then like, I just remember the, uh, this semi uh, somewhat insensitively named after bar mitzvah, which would be like the <laughs> gathering of people from our, all the bars in that like little triangle by where the plaza is. Um, and so just that sort of like, I don't know, just having that routine of like, like having this insanely long day of working and then having enough energy to like go out and then, you know, get, not get home to like three and then start over again the next day. Um, that was like, that's definitely like a super fond memory. It's very work hard, play hard, which I yeah. think is kind of a big known thing in Madison too, is the whole work hard, play hard mentality. But do you think your time there of kind of those deadlines and every day is a, a refresh new start? Do you think that kind of helped you from an early age um, get pretty good at time management? I think of my time at Madison as being like, um, the best possible introduction to like learning how to be a grown up. Um, because, you know, obviously there are colleges in like big, big cities. And, you know, I know people who went to college in New York or Los Angeles, but I think that that's a different, it's like a somewhat of a different experience because the cities are so big that you're in college, but you're sort of like, you have to kind of stay within the bubble of of your school and you maybe branch out to go do some stuff in the city or whatever. In Madison, I felt like it was a small enough city that it was very approachable, yet it had all of the right elements. Like it had one of everything. It had, you know, types of food I had never had before. It had like, you know, just like I could, there was, I could get a job. I could like get involved with cool things. And so I felt like it was, um, you know, if I had gone to a school that was more of a kind of a closed campus or more of a, you know, like um, more insular, um, not as sort of integrated with the community and with the city. I think it would have been harder to make that transition into like learning what I needed to know to be a functioning adult. But because, well, another thing is like, you know, there's not enough dorms for all the students. So like you're forced to like get an apartment and like deal with that. And like, how do you find an apartment? Like, is your landlord a jerk? Do you have to like, like signing a lease? Like all, you know, just all those little things. Um, and Madison just kind of like, it's kind of like eases you into it. You know, it's like at the end of the day, you screw up, like you're an hour from home. Like it's not a city of millions. Like you're probably going to be fine, but it's like a really good kind of, kind of transition. And so, you know, the deadlines, the fending for yourself, the kind of figuring out, you know, all that basic adult stuff. Um, I felt like Madison was just a really good place for that. So after you graduated from UW, you started at a startup in Chicago called Feedburner. Yep. Um, I know me and Ashton have a lot of friends um, that'll be graduating and starting their jobs with kind of more well-established companies. Um, but what was it like to kind of right from the get-go be with a startup that was doing, it's a tech startup, so doing kind of new stuff. Um, what, was that, what was that experience like for you? It was kind of crazy. Um, so when I, when I started college, I was an engineering major, but I realized really quickly that I, I didn't like it. So I kind of, you know, wandered around for a while. I ended up getting really interested in design um, and uh, switched to, to study journalism. Um, and then I, on the side, I built like a um, small business doing web design. Um, so I had like clients, like some, like some were like nonprofits and university projects and stuff like that, but I had like clients. Um, and so I knew like a few people who worked in the advertising industry and, and my wife's actually a year older than me. So she had like, by the time I was a senior, she had graduated and moved to Chicago and she got a job at an ad agency. So that was like my frame of reference. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll graduate. I'll get a job at like an ad agency or a marketing agency that's doing like website stuff. Um, and I, I don't know how many jobs I applied for, not like a ton, but I, let's say I applied for five. And like it got rejected from all of them. Um, and uh, somebody was like, hey, I heard about this cool tech company in 
Chicago. Maybe you should apply to them. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, and I had like always really been into like tech stuff. And I, I literally let, like uh, convinced my parents to like get a subscription to Wired Magazine, like in the 90s when I was like a teenager to like read about all the cool tech companies. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I, I applied, I got the job. So it was like, it was another one of those things. It was like totally not planned. It wasn't like I always wanted to get into, into tech. It was just sort of this like weird thing that happened. And then I like, I show up there and there's like, there's like seven people who work there. I mean, it was like, there was no like onboarding. There's no HR. Like, I think, I don't think I was wearing a tie, but I was like, I was like super awkwardly dressed like the first day. And like the people who worked there are literally like in t-shirts <laughs> that are like from some like 5k they had done. And I was like, okay, interesting. Um, so it was just like, you know, I think. Um, I've always been like a sort of a self-guided learner and just kind of, you know, have enjoyed figuring things out without a lot of guidance. So it worked well for me, but it was definitely like, a, you know, got thrown into the deep end and had to, you know, either figure out how to swim or, you know, or sink um, in, in that water. But, uh, but it was really good. Like, I mean, you know, looking back, I sort of, I feel like, um, and this is kind of advice I sometimes give to people like, there's a, there's a few different categories of, of like career opportunities you want to look for. I think in the first five, six years, like, I think you want to, you want to have a brand name because like, it's just something for people to latch onto on your resume. You want to have like a startup like experience where there's just a ton of uncertainty and there's a ton of like, you know, like there's no structure, like there's no mentorship because I think those are really good growth opportunities. And then the third thing is like, you want to do something that, that is like, you know, you care about the mission of it. And it, it doesn't have to be like the mission, like social impact, you know, that kind of stuff. It can just be like, you just care about what the company does. And, and you probably can't get all those things in the same company. But, you know, in those first five, six years of your career, when you're probably going to move around a couple of times, um, if you can hit on all those things, like, I think you, you get into like your late 20s with a really nice set of like, experiences and you can tell a few different stories about what you've done and, and what you learned from it. And so I basically got the like the startup part right away. Um and I would say the mission part too. Like I was I I cared about what we were doing. I thought it was really interesting. And then that company was acquired by Google. So then I had the brand name um on my resume as well. And and so um but yeah the, the startup experience was like it was it, it was it was everything you'd imagine a startup would be. I mean like I would, I would work all day. I would get home. Like we would like, I don't know, have dinner. And then I would like work again for like three, four hours at night. Like, um, you know, it was, it was pretty intense, but it was also like really, really fun. And I'm still super good friends with some of the people I worked with there. So before we go into, um, your experience at Google, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were at Feedburner for two years. Yeah. That? So you're there for two years still relatively just a kid out of college. Um, what's that moment like when you hear you get acquired by Google and you're moving out to California? What's yeah, was what's that, that kind moment? of like a long, you know, if I don't know if you guys knew about that before it kind of happened or knew that you were picking up success and that, you know, something big big could come your way. But that must have been really exciting to find out that Google was interested. Yeah, it was um it was kind of surreal. Like, I don't think I recognized at the time what a big deal it was. Just um, for listeners, could you, was this like 2006, seven ish? Seven. Yeah. So I, Google, so Google is pretty relevant, but not what they are today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can like share some funny tidbits about that, but, but yeah, like, um, uh, I think FeedBurner was started in like 2003 or four mm-hmm. and then they raised like, so they raised like a round of funding when they started and then they raised like another round of funding, which is what enabled them to hire like me and the, and like a handful of other people who started at the same time. That was 2005. And then two years later, we were acquired by Google, which is really fast for, um, for like a startup to be acquired. Uh, sometimes startups get acquired early and it's called an aqua hire, which is where the, uh, the parent company acquires the company, but it's basically just a way of hiring the team. 
Um, so sometimes that'll happen in the first couple of years, but for like a real acquisition, um, and the Google ac- or the acquisition of FeedBurner was about a hundred million dollars total. So for like a real acquisition, for that to happen in just like a couple of years is is really really fast. Um, but uh, just to, I'll just share like a few a few little tidbits. Like I um, I remember so there's this blog called TechCrunch, and uh, it's still it's still like a super popular blog, and it's all about the tech industry and startups in particular. And I used to read it because you know again I was like into that stuff. And I remember one day I was like reading TechCrunch and I was like, man, like they're just like writing about the life that I'm living. I'm going to stop writing. I'm going to stop reading this blog. Like, I don't need to read this blog anymore. Cause like, I don't know the ups and downs of like, so-and-so launched this thing and this company got this funding. I was like, that is my life. And that, and so that was like a really cool moment to like realize that I was like living this thing that I had been, been like following and, and reading about. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the, like, I don't remember like the exact series of events, but, um, but there was like, you know, these acquisitions, they take quite a long time. And a big part of the acquisition is the company that's buying. They want to know about the people that they're hiring, you know, cause a part of it is like, you're, you're getting this team, but you're also getting this business. And so there was like kind of essentially interviews. Like we basically had to interview for Google. Um, and, uh, and then there's like a point where, you know, the deal is happening, but like, it could totally still fall apart. And then like, I remember the founder, like our boss is telling us like, okay, this is going to happen. This is probably going to happen. And then it just got to a point where it was like, why are we even doing any work? Like it, there's like, you know, a, we're all super distracted. Cause like we, you know, we're just so excited. B like, if this, if this acquisition works out, whatever we do in the next two months is not going to matter anyway. And see if it doesn't work out, we're going to kind of be screwed or not screwed, but like, we're going to have to go and reevaluate some things. So I remember like one of the founders of the company, like one of my bosses, he was literally just like watching movies at his desk all day, like on his laptop. Cause it was like, we were all like, what's the point? Um, and then for our final, we had a final round of interviews before the acquisition closed. We had to, uh, we actually had to fly out to California for that. Um, and I was super sick. I had like the worst cold ever. I could like barely talk. And so I was like, totally like nursing my throat to like, make sure that I could, I could make it through the interview. And the interviews were like super, I mean, the people were nice, but I was like, so nervous. It was so like high stakes. Um, and then I later like got to know those people really well. And one of them is like still a friend, like somebody that interviewed me for, for this, you know, for, for part of this acquisition. Um, so it was like, it kind of took a, a while to unfold and then, and then it became like super, super real, super fast because it was the week, um, I think it was the week of Memorial day. And it was basically like, I don't remember, you know, it was like the Memorial day, it was a Monday. And then I think, or maybe this happened over Memorial day weekend. I don't remember exactly, but it was basically like on a Wednesday or a Thursday, they were like, okay, this is definitely going to happen. And they want us all to go to New York on Monday. And it was like, okay, all right. I guess I'm going to New York on Monday. And like, we like, um, like, I just remember having to put stuff on like my personal, like credit card. Uh, Cause like, we like, I don't remember all the details, but I basically ended up in a situation where like, I like had maxed out my personal credit card to like pay to go to New York for work. But they, I like hadn't gotten paid for like either for my stock options or like my first paycheck from Google. Um, and it, so it was just like very, like uh, this very intense um, moment um, just sort of like being, being thrown into it. Um, and then uh, to your point about like uh, Nick, about like, you know, Google sort of not being what it is today. I remember like telling friends about this and then being like almost a little bit like confused because they were like, wait, how does like, how does Google, why is Google acquiring companies? Like, they're just this like website, like, how do they have money? And of course they were making like billions of dollars already, but it was like, you know, it, it was, it was mostly just like a search engine and like a few other things. Um, and I remember this one conversation with a friend where I could just like, I could tell he was like trying to be nice, but he was like, tr- he was like confused. He was like, and I, we were talking about the free launches and he was like, it was like, so how do they, you know, does somebody subsidize the lunches or like who pays for it? And I was like, 
I was like, this company is like the most profitable company in America. <laughs> like, you know, just because they're not, you know, General Electric or like, you know, whatever doesn't mean they're not, you know, they're not successful, but, it, but the, you the, weren't reading the tech blogs like you were. <laughs> exactly. But the, the reputation of Google, I think, hadn't quite caught up with the success of the company. Um, but it, you know, it was an exciting time because Google did still have kind of a, a startup y feel itself, even though there were, you know, thousands of employees and they were making lots of money. I think it's so funny how your, your note about um, your, your friends talking about who subsidized the free lunches. And Google not having that name recognition, I guess, 14 years later, like how much, how much that's flipped. Um, yeah. That's just kind of a funny thing. Yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think of how fast that has happened too. Like, yes, so, yeah. I mean, just on kind of the scale of like other industries where it can take decades to like build a sort of a household name, like, you know, Google went from, I mean, Google started in 1999, I think. Um, but for like the first 10 years, it wasn't really considered to be, uh, you know, a truly established company. I mean, um, in, in 2007, I had friends who would use Yahoo. As a, yeah. A, a oh, Bang. Some people would use Bang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's basically all Google now. They pretty much yeah. dominated that yeah. sector. Yeah. Definitely. And how long were you at, um, Google before you were assigned to the, the rebranding of YouTube? So I was at Google in Chicago. So part of the, the logic for acquiring us was that we would establish the Chicago office. Um, well, there was, some, there was a sales team, but we would be the first like engineering and product team in Chicago. And I was there for, um, let's see, there for about two and a half years, um, traveling to New York a lot and traveling to San Francisco a lot, working on Google's advertising products. And then I had the opportunity to transfer to, to YouTube. And that was when we moved out to San Francisco. Um, and I, I, I flew out to San Francisco on January 3rd, 2010. Um, and my wife stayed behind for a couple of months because we, we had a condo that we owned in Chicago that we had to sell. And that was like, 2010 was like, the housing market was still like totally in the shambles. And so it was really hard to sell. Um, so she had to, she like stayed behind to wrap up what she was doing at work and sell the condo. Um, and so I was at YouTube then for a year and a half. So from January until the next July. Um, and then I got sort of poached from YouTube to go to Google ventures, which is kind of sort of a part of Google, but was run as a totally separate, um, organization with like its own reporting structure. So I'd like to move on to. I know like on other podcasts, you've talked, you've talked about make time and sprint a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, so maybe other people can listen to those to find out if you're tired of talking about those themselves, but <laughs> I just like to learn about, cause I feel like I go through that a lot. I'm sure Ashlyn does too. And a lot of college students, but kind of your realization of learning that you need to be more productive, kind of your strategies to become more productive, kind of. Take me through like the, the start of that process when you realized it was relevant to you and kind of how you got to, you know, the, the finish line of that is that you write a book about productivity and how to make time for yourself. Um, what was like the start of that? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know what the start was. Like, I just remember um, even when I was like a kid, I just always remember being like super into projects. Um, you know, and this goes back to like being a nerdy kid, like perfectly content to like be in my room or like be in the basement, like building stuff out of Legos or like drawing boats or, you know, just like working on projects and just being like totally in the zone, you know, that feeling of like everything else is blocked out. I'm just like super focused. Um, and I think that was one of the things that attracted me to, to design. Um, and then later to writing it was like, these are um, types of work that I think really require and reward intense focus. Um, and so I like, I, I had been in these different situations personally and professionally with hobbies and projects and work where I, I like, I don't know, that was just like my sweet spot was like getting in the zone, being productive, getting things done, being focused. Um, and then really it was like when I was at Google, when I started to realize that the world isn't really set up 
to support that kind of work. Um, because, you know, at Google, which as we were just talking about, was already like a pretty big company. It was tons of meetings. It was like, you know, I would get hundreds of emails every day. And, you know, I just began to get this sense that really I was spending more time on like the, the work about my work instead of like the work itself. Um, and, and like, I would, you know, a lot of days it would be like the whole day would go by or maybe not the whole day, but maybe it's like three. And then I'd be like, okay, finally, the end of the day, like I can finally get some work done, you know? And it's like, I don't know, at, at some point I just sort of, um, began to, um, question whether that normal was like, was the right way or the only way. And in those years would like read books about productivity and experiment with different apps and tools and systems. Um, and I don't know, I think, I think the whole thing was just kind of driven by like my desire to get back to those, those moments of intense focus and flow that I had, had experienced. Um, but then the, like the really cool experience for me was that, um, when I went to Google ventures, I was in a role where I was basically responsible for going into each of the startups that we invested in and helping them do their work. So I was like a consultant um, who would show up at their offices and like help them with their product design, help them figure out how to go to market, how to attract customers. Um, and so I just like, I got to then use some of my ideas. I got to like test them out on all these guinea pigs and all these other people and be like, oh, what if we tried running this project this way? You know, what if this week we worked in this different way or we like didn't have any meetings or like we agreed that none of us would check our email for the whole week because we're just going to work together face to face. Um, and so that was what led to the design sprint process and what led to the first book, um, kind of having that, that laboratory um, to test out these ideas on a bunch of different teams and a bunch of different individuals. Um, and then kind of like, you know, in a, in a somewhat indirect way, led directly to make time as well. We, we wrote Sprint in 2015. It came out in 2016. This is with Jake Knapp. Yeah, with Jake. Yeah. Yeah. And what's his kind of what's his like short, what's his, what's his role, which is what's his short story? Um, Jake is a, he's a designer and, and author um, like me. He um, also worked at Google. So before Google Ventures, he was a designer at Google. Before that, he worked at Microsoft. Before that, he worked at Oakley on their like the sunglass company, like on their website design team. Um, and he had been experimenting with these early uh, versions of the design sprint uh, at Google because he was having the same struggles. It was like, hey, we're trying to do all these big new things. Like, we can't get any work done because we have too many meetings. Um, and then we like recruited him to join us at Google Ventures to take his process and use it with all the companies that we were investing in. Um, but, uh, oh, so what I was saying was like the, the, we wrote sprint in 2015, it came out in 2016. And then we wrote make time, like pretty much right away. Like we started writing make time in 2017 and it came out in 2018. So they're like, they're, they're kind of like companion books. Like if you look at them both, like sprint is like this very specific recipe and then make time, like the, in the introduction, we talk about how the four big steps of make time flow directly from the lessons that we learned in running design sprints, but then it's translated into, well, how do you use these tactics like in your everyday work, in your everyday life, instead of, you know, in a sprint process that takes a whole week and a whole team to do. Did you always kind of think that maybe one day you'd write a book? Because I know you, when you went to school for journalism, so that was that kind of always in your plan and something you were interested in? It was not. No. The only, I, I would like be honest with you that the only long-term plan I have ever had that actually came to fruition was, um, was the big, the sailing trip that we did. And we, we haven't talked about that. But like, <laughs> I'd love to learn more about that. Well, so I'll just, I'll just to give you the short version right now. So my wife and I, when we, we in 2017, we were kind of at a point where we felt like we just wanted a, a career break. We were sort of at natural kind of transition points in our career. And so we ended up um, living on our sailboat and, and sailing from San Francisco to Key West via the Panama Canal. That was a total of 18 months. It was just like this extended sabbatical. Um, and that we planned for like many years, like going all the way back to living in Chicago. We started to talk about it and like plan things. Other than that, every single other thing that I've done, every job, every project has been like, it, 
it's all just been like this series of opportunities that I've, you know, I've said no to some things and yes to some things and, and cool things have happened. But I, you know, I, I never like, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know. I've just never like had these really clear visions or goals for what I wanted to do. It's always just been more a process of kind of following my, my curiosity and, and, and doing work that, that feels important and, and interesting. Do you feel like you're, I'll call it a revelation of whatever the book, I'll call it a revelation that the book make time, I guess those ideas, um, does that kind of coincide with, at least in prioritizing time, that you talk about make time, um, and going on that trip you talked about with your wife, did you feel like, did you feel like you had to make time for that? Yeah. So that's like, so, you know, the, the, the fundamental, like the basis of make time is that like the world will fill all of your time and it'll take up all of your energy and all of your attention if you let it, because there's infinite information, there's virtually infinite people, there's so many choices and options. And so, you know, whether in small ways or big ways, every single day, you should find ways to structure your time and your day around what matters to you. So start there and, and build out from there. So don't, you know, don't start your day by checking email and get as much done as you can. Do the thing that matters first and then do email at the end. That's just a super small example. And so like, you know, doing a big trip or taking a sabbatical or, you know, moving to a cabin in the woods or whatever, like those are all, I think, really extreme examples of taking this type of thinking to the max and saying, what if I really restructure my whole life around the thing that I want to prioritize? And so it's definitely like an example of taking that, that mindset to the max. Um, but you know, that's, that's not really what the book is about. Cause you know, I, I don't, you know, I think that like, there's a lot of room for, for everybody and, and not just room. I think there's a bigger opportunity to do these things on a day by day basis. Cause you know, we don't live our life in these grand moments that, you know, are perfect for sharing on Instagram. Like we live our lives in these like mundane day-to-day moments. And so if we can find ways to structure those moments around what we care about, I think that's more meaningful. Um, so, you know, I, maybe it's a fine point, but I, I, I guess I, I don't want people to think that like this, you know, they see the book make time. Like, I don't want them to think it's like, it's all about this, like, quit your job, go do something crazy. Yeah. But, but like in the preparation, we absolutely use those, those tactics. And I actually write about that in the book, like taking this, um, this big goal, this big, you know, uh, long-term plan, and really breaking it down into pieces that, that my wife and I could tackle, you know, what can we get done today? How can we prioritize doing this instead of, you know, something else that, that is less important. Um, and that enabled us to like do all the work and all the preparations necessary to be able to realize this, this long-term goal that we had. And what was life on the boat? Like, were you working at the time or kind of just hitting the water? Every day? Um, so the first like, okay, so we left in October and I didn't really do any work probably until sometime in the spring. Actually, I take that back. I had to do a little bit of work because um, that was 2017 and make time was coming out in the fall of 2018. So I was doing like some reviews and revisions of the manuscript. Like you're self-employed at this point. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So at that point I was um, like, you know, I guess, you could say that I was sort of like semi-retired. So like we were, um, we were, and we've written, we wrote about this um, on our, on our blog um, at the time. And I also wrote like a bonus chapter for make time. We basically had saved up enough money and we had invested it um, in uh, nothing exotic, but stock market and bond funds in such a way that, that it generated enough income that we could live at a modest level. Like we could live sort of a, dirtbag, like nomadic lifestyle on the boat in Central America. Like we couldn't live like in San Francisco that way, but, but like we didn't really need to have income for that period of time. We had kind of like structured, you know, saved up enough and structured things that we didn't need to. So I wasn't really, I mean, I had quit my job and my wife had as well, but I wasn't really working other than like getting this, this book ready. Um, And then the, we we were on the boat like from October until June, and then we were in Milwaukee from June until December. 
And then we were back on the boat from December until May. And that second chunk on the boat, I did a lot more work. Like I would, I would do like a couple of hours of work a day. Um, I, in, in part, because I think I was like, I was setting the kind of setting the stage for the things I was going to do afterward. Um, but our, our days were like, um, I would say half of the time. So like half the day was just like taking care of life because like everything's like slower and harder when you like living in that way. Like you know, we had to make sure like the boat was safe and we were like, the weather wasn't going to change. And like, we needed to get groceries. That was like a multi-hour excursion. Cause we had to like get to shore and like go like get a taxi to the grocery store. And like, you know, we don't really speak Spanish. So we had to like figure out like different products with different labels. Like, um, so just kind of like dealing with life took about probably half the time. And then we had like every day we would, we would do almost every day we would do like something active or like we would, you know, go for a hike or we would like go you know, swimming, paddleboarding, whatever. Um, and then we had a lot of time to just like relax and like read and write and reflect. And, um, and then, and then we would like always go to bed early because the sun in the tropics, the sun goes down. It's like six o'clock year, year round. So like, you know, by like six, we'd like be eating dinner. And then by eight, we'd be like, okay, let's, let's read for a little while. And then like nine o'clock, we're like, okay, we're tired. We've been out in the sun all day. Let's go to bed. Um, so it was pretty cool. Taking an uh, 18th month sabbatical is uh, pretty rare in America these days. Yeah. Um, what's the, I guess, for those that may have the opportunity to do it or may consider it, kind of what's the before and after change of perspective in doing something like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the, it's, this is, this is still unfolding. So like these, these thoughts are by no means perfectly baked. Um, but like, I would say that, um, I got like a, a totally new perspective on, um, like, I think on what I cared about, you know, and the kinds of work that I wanted to be doing. Um, and I, probably the, the nicest thing about taking the time off was that it gave a really natural cutoff date for, for like anything that was like undesirable that had just been like happening, you know, like just responsibilities you have or stuff you're involved in. That's like, it's fine. But like, if you could start from scratch, you maybe wouldn't add that thing back in. Like all that stuff got like a hard, hard cutoff. Cause like, um, we're leaving on this trip. I like, can't do that thing anymore. Like, I can't be on that committee. I like, can't whatever. Um, and so that was really nice to then have that blank canvas to start over from. Um, it, this is, this is worn off a little bit, but I think especially in like the first year that we were back, I had a, a really intense renewed appreciation for just like the basic luxuries and conveniences of life. Like, you know, having like uh, fast internet, for example, or like, um, you know, being able to like walk to the, like, we live like walking distance to a whole foods, being able to like walk to whole foods and get like super good, like fresh, organic, like whatever, like just those, those simple things that we all take for granted. Um, and I'm already starting to take for granted again, but like, it was really nice to have, have a renewed appreciation for, for that kind of stuff. Um, I think the, the hard part, well, there's been two, two hard parts. Um, one has been sort of the, the loss and then adjustment of identity. And this is like getting like a little bit philosophical, but like, you know, we really, um, we, we wrap up so much in our sense of, of identity and our sense of who we are. Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a person who likes that or doesn't like that. I'm a designer. I'm a writer. I'm a, you know, I'm, a, um, I'm an athlete or I'm, you know, I'd like to go out late or I don't like to, or just like big things, little things, whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, obviously a huge part of that is work. And sort of like where you fit into culture and society and like, you know, just to be blunt about it, like being a partner at like Google Ventures, a venture capital firm, that's like, that's like a very high status job to have. And so went from like, you know, having that to just being like a, a person living on a boat and like, you know, that was cool because people would be like, oh, you live on a boat. That's interesting. But like, it didn't, you know, it was a, it was just a total recast of my, my self-identity. 
Um, and then again, when we transitioned from you know being on the trip and being on the boat to then being in Milwaukee and people being like, what do you do for a living? And like, I don't know, like, I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, just like, that is, uh, that, that was like a, a more difficult sort of transition to go through than I, than I anticipated. Um, the flip side of it, of course, is that it's like, it's good to force you to like reconsider those things, um, and really decide what matters. But, but that was tough. And then the other thing that was tough was like, um, I like, I think, um, the just sort of career momentum is like when you're, when you're like in the sort of the flow of a career and you're jumping from job to job and like things are happening, like it all feels very like natural and easy. But, and, and I know that like, I'll, I'll, I've heard stories like this from like a lot of women who have left the, the, their jobs to like raise kids. Like when you're out of it for even like a few years, getting back in is like, is like harder than you think it's going to be. Um, just like, you know, people saying no, people like not being as interested as they used to be. Like, um, you know, obviously I can't, I can only imagine what the experience is like for, for mothers, but, but like, I feel like I can relate in a tiny, tiny way because, you know, it's sort of like, you know, along with all that, that annoying stuff getting cut off, like all the really good momentum, uh, of like having, building a career got cut off. And now it's like getting the, getting the wheels turning again to try to like get things back up to speed. It's just like, it's just a, it's a challenge. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a completely different way of living when you're on a boat like that. It's, you know, in America, at least we have this kind of idea of how your day goes, um, whether that be when you're in school or when you're working and it, it kind of fits this little mold. So taking that long of a break from all of that. And I mean, the, the layout of your day that you said a little bit earlier is, is so different. So I can absolutely understand why that would be kind of a weird and kind of difficult adjustment coming back. But I guess since then, I know you mentioned a lot of people asking, you know, what do you do and not to be another one of those people, but what have you been up to lately? (laughs) Well, that's only fair of you to ask. Um, (laughs) I actually have a a lot more clarity now because I've, you know, we got back in, um, May of 2019. So it's been almost two years since we've been back. Um, and what I'm like mostly spending my time on now is, is working with startups again. So, um, investing in startups, advising them, working with them as a consultant. Um, I continue to do work to sort of spread the word about the design sprint to teach the design sprint, but that's really kind of the backbone of the work that I do with startups. So, um, you know, startups will reach out to me. They'll want to work with me to help them define their product, to help them figure out how to reach certain types of customers. And I use that design sprint method that we developed at Google Ventures to help them do that. Um, and then I spend a bit of time still on things related to make time. So we have a bit of a business that kind of was built around the, the book and those ideas. So we have an online course that I, you know, it, it kind of runs on its own, but I sort of administer that. We have a community of people who've taken that course that I participate in. And then we have a, um, a business partner who teaches in person or now they're virtual, but like live um, synchronous uh, workshops. So like for a team who wants to like come together and kind of revisit or rethink how they're spending their time as a team, he teaches those. So I like, basically I like run the business. So I like run like the website, like lead generation, marketing, like, you know, we have some email automation stuff set up um, and then like hand leads over to him. So doing those things, but really like the kind of 80% of my time is the, is the work with startups. So when a startup reach out, reaches out to you because they want to work with you or get some advising, um, what's, what are some qualities in those startups that make you excited to work with them or even just pick them up to begin with? Yeah, good question. Um, I there's like, there's a bunch of things that I look at. I mean, it's almost a cliche, but, 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 uh, I think it's a cliche for a good reason, which is that like the people are the most important, like regardless of anything else, like, you know, I want these to be people that, that I like people that I would, that I think I can learn from that I want to spend time with. But I think maybe even more important than that, um, I want somebody who approaches the building of a new business, um, in a, in a very humble and methodical way. You know, I, I don't want to work with people who say, I've got this brilliant vision 
for what we're going to build. It's going to take us two years to build it, but trust me, it's going to be amazing when we're done. Um, people, th- there are people like that who have been successful and, and we know about them because they're, they are so rare. <laughs> they're exceptional. So their stories stand out. The vast majority of people who take that approach with building new businesses fail. And so I like to work with people who, who say like, look, we believe that if we build this thing for these people, like there's going to be magic there, but there's a lot we don't know. Like we don't know exactly what we need to build. We don't know exactly what features, like we don't know how it needs to be organized or structured. We don't exactly know who those customers are. We think they're these kinds of people, but we don't know like what the exact profile is. We don't necessarily know how to find them or like how the business model is all going to shake out. And they basically treat that as a roadmap and they say, okay, first thing we need to figure out is, you know, how are we going to reach customers? Okay, let's work on that and ignore everything else for now. Um, and so I like to work with people who kind of take that methodical approach. Um, if I'm considering an investment into a company, I look at a bunch of other things. I look at um, the um, sort of the opportunity. You know, are they working on something that is big, that is worthwhile? Um, is there a sense of of mission about it? Like, is it is it you know just to make money, or is it going to help people do something that they care about? Um, I look at the the approach that they're taking. So, what is their idea, and and what's unique about it? You know, I think especially in the tech world. And I think in all in all types of businesses, but especially in the tech world, people will say things like, um, "All the existing products for X are terrible, and I think I can make a better one." And like that's not a good enough basis to start a business because like it's like, well, do the customers think they're terrible? Like, do they care enough? Is this like an integral part of their day? Um, and then how are you going to find those customers? And how are you going to be able to convince them? And is it worth using your thing? Is it going to be hard to switch? Are they going to have to pay more? So I want to like, those things all need to sort of make sense at a glance. Um, and then in addition to the, the team, which I talked about, then I also basically want to see that there are some sparks, you know, that there's like some success already, even if it's a very, very early stage startup. I want them to be able to point to something and say like, you know, we, we put up this landing page for the product and a thousand people signed up on the first day or, you know, something where it's like, like, oh, wow. Like, okay, there's clearly something here. Um, and in my, in my experience, it's usually, I don't want to say it's obvious, but like, even at the earliest, earliest stages of things that go on to be very successful, you usually can see those like eyebrow raising moments of like, okay, there's clearly something special happening here. I mean, yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, if there's any um, little startup listeners listening to this podcast, I think that's really good advice for all of them. Um, But kind of a change of topic, but I'm a little bit curious. Um, Other than like the obvious ones of phone, social media, Netflix, things like that. Where do you think that young people or I mean, people in general are kind of wasting their time and I guess, what have you noticed in your life um, that could maybe be cut down time on? And what have you added to your life or prioritized higher than anything else um, that you do every day or every so often to kind of yeah. quality overall? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, and kind of a hard one to answer because it's kind of like kind of like the question, <laughs> you know, about like, yeah, how, yeah. Did, how did design <laughs> That's what we're asking that's you. All, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's less about what to include or not to include and more about the kind of the arrangement of those things. So like, you know, I use social media, like I use Twitter, I use LinkedIn, like I read the news every day, like I watch TV every night. Um, Like I get tons of emails. I have to spend lots of time on emails every day. But like, I think that um, if, if you can compartmentalize those things, and you can um, really build your day around the stuff that you want to do um, first or the things that are most important or when your energy is best, then you can, you can end the day, even if you still did all that other stuff, like you can still end the day feeling like, okay, I spent my time really well. Like I focused on the things that mattered to me. And so like one of the ways that I do that, for example, is um, like when I sort of wake up in the morning, I... I make coffee and I, I feed our cats. We have two cats. So I feed the cats. 
And then I like, I just start working. So I, I like, I don't look at email. I don't like check Twitter. I don't read the news. I have something in mind, usually the night before that I'm going to work on first thing. And it's usually like a bigger chunk of work. So, um, you know, doing some design work, some writing, editing, something like that. And I try to do that work right away because I know that if I like do that other stuff first, if I say like, oh, let me just check my email, reply to a couple of things, or like, let me just catch up on the news that like that, like five minutes will turn into 15, will turn into an hour. And then I'll be like, oh crap, now I don't have enough time for this other thing. And then I'll just like kind of feel bad about myself. Um, but if I can start the day focused on what I care about and push those other things off till later and sort of give them, you know, give them little boxes that they can fit in. Like, okay, I give myself 30 minutes on Twitter today. Like, you know, those types of sort of um, uh, constraints, uh, I, think, I think really help. Um, the other category that I think is, um, is important. And, you know, I know, I know a lot of people say this and it's, it's true is like just, um, kind of self-care, but I think that, um, you know, self-care can be really, really simple. Like it can be as simple as just like going for a walk or like texting a friend or like standing up and stretching, (laughs) you know, like just simple things that, um, sort of, you know, feed our, our minds or our bodies or, you know, our, our hearts. Um, those things, I think they, they're really important, um, because they, they provide a counterbalance to all that other stuff that's going on. So they make us, um, you know, they just make us feel like we're, we're, we're more well-balanced, but then they also, um, they, they sort of give us the, the fuel and the, um, the capacity to continue to make those choices day after day. You know, it's like we, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I've certainly been in cycles where you know, it's just this downward cycle of like, I get, you know, and th- this was happening to me, like around the election a lot. Cause of like, you know, all the crazy news, like, I just like, I spend like, you know, I'd look at Twitter first thing in the morning and then I'd like, would start to try to do something productive, but I wouldn't be satisfied. So then I'd like give up on that and I'd read the news and then they'd be like, oh, I like didn't have breakfast. Cause I was like, like doom scrolling. And then I'd be like, crap. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't shower yet. Now I feel like shit. And like, I, you know, just like the things spiral out of control. And so like, you know, I think it's important to prioritize not only like the activities that you want to do, but some of those, you know, more kind of um, self-care type of activities to support your, your energy and your overall well-being because it, it, it gives you kind of the fuel that you need to, to sort of keep those systems set up and, and kind of keep your, your priorities straight day after day. Um, something you've mentioned on this podcast, and I think you're probably not giving yourself enough credit, is that you've never really had any master plan. You've kind of just stumbled into things. Yeah. Um, but with that in mind, um, being John Zorotsky, what do you think are maybe your specific or unique quirks or habits that, that make you make you you? Um, I, so I think there's, there's a few things. Um, well, I'll just be totally frank and acknowledge that I have like a ton of, um, privilege because I'm white and I'm tall and I was raised in like a very stable, loving family. Um, and, uh, and I've managed to do really well in my career and make enough money that like, I'm, I'm starting from like a very high, high position. Um, and also this isn't exactly an example of privilege, but my wife and I don't have kids. So like, you know, a lot of the stuff that I talk about, about sort of designing your day or prioritizing things, you know, that's a, a, a real struggle for, for parents. Um, and my co-author Jake, he does have sons, so he kind of keeps me balanced on those things. But, you know, I think some of, some of those things are, are kind of structural elements that either, you know, I'm the beneficiary of either unintentionally or intentionally that have really you know, allowed me to start at kind of a, a higher level than, than many uh, other people are. Um, I, you know, some of the things that, that, you know, people tell me that I, that I sort of view as being um, attributes of, of what have like helped me be successful are um, the ability to really focus. So like, you know, that, you know, what we were just talking about, like the ability to totally, you know, zone in on like a specific task and, and, and get things done and be productive. Um, I think the, uh, 
the the level of like um, sort of attention to detail that I have that I've like some of it occurs naturally, but I've also cultivated it over the years. Um, I think um, honestly, like the the my ability to write and to like structure information, which which I attribute largely to both studying journalism, but also working as a designer. Um, I think that that's, that's really helped. Um, and then there's also like, there's a, a couple of things that I always keep in mind when I'm evaluating a new job or a new project, um, that I try to keep, I try to keep them all sort of balanced. Um, and those things are, um, mission ownership and leverage. And so mission is, I think, you know, we kind of understand what that is. I need to care enough about it that I'm going to be able to keep going, even if it gets difficult. Ownership is either literal financial ownership or just even a sense of ownership. I only want to work on things where like it's mine to some extent, you know? Um, and when it comes to like building wealth and, and, you know, sort of that type of thing, literally owning, you know, not just getting paid in cash and then moving on, but like literally owning pieces of the things that I work on, whether it's through stock options or whatever, is really, really important. And then leverage is a third one. And leverage, you know, most people, when they hear it, they think of debt, they think of like financial leverage. Um, but that's not really how I, how I mean it. Um, although it could, it could be interpreted in that way. For me, leverage is like the ability to do things that have an impact or an effect that is, that is amplified beyond what I can personally do. So an example of that is writing a book is, 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 creates a ton of leverage versus just coaching people one-on-one, you know, like I could, I could help people one-on-one, but I think if I write a book, I can help a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I, I always look for ways and I, this is something I look for with startups too, when I'm evaluating them, but I always look for like, what are the points of leverage? How can I use technology? How can I use, um, ideas? How can I use communities or audiences to, um, try to amplify my efforts and amplify my impact? I mean, that's great. I think that all of the things you mentioned are kind of definitely big reasons of why you got where you are today. And I guess that kind of brings me to the last question we have for you, which is, I mean, you've done a lot with your life. um, And what are you going to prioritize with uh, the time you have left? Is there anything in your life that you, it's a big goal for you that you really want to do? I still don't really have any goals. And I know that sounds like, <laughs> sounds like weird or like, I I'm guess that's what makes out. you you. So <laughs> yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so like, you know, I would say that I have always been like, I've always taken like a portfolio approach to my future. So I like, there's like a bunch of stuff that I would like to do and like a bunch of ideas. And I have like a little bit writing on each of those. Um, and if any one of them hits and it works out, then it'll be like, it'll be cool. I'll be really excited um, to, to get like more concrete and less, less uh, weird about it. Um, I actually did both. just, <laughs> what's that? You could do both if you want to. But yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually, I just started uh, a couple months ago, a new business. And unfortunately I can't talk about what it is, but it's, it's related to the work that I have been doing with startups and, and things like that. Um, and so that's like, I think, you know, it's, it's going well so far, but if it, um, if it, if it works out, it will be the type of thing that, that is a, you know, it's not a two year sort of, you know, thing. It's like a 10 to 15 year thing potentially. So, um, you know, that is, you know, I'm not, I'm not like locked into it, but I think, you know, it, it's, it has the potential to be a really substantial and long-term kind of platform around this business. Um, I like definitely want to take another like sabbatical or break. Um, and the first time was from, so I graduated in 2005 and then we took, we left on our trip in 2017. So it was 12 years. So like, you know, 12 years from now, like, you know, I'll be, I'll be almost 50 and like, you know, it feels like probably a good age to like do another like break or sort of, you know, downshift a little bit. What's that? You still have the boat? We don't have the boat anymore. And so that's another like like definitely interested in having a boat or boats at some 
points in the future. Um, we live in Milwaukee now. We live really close to the lake. So like, it would be great to have a boat here. Um, we, we, despite growing up in Wisconsin, we had never been to Door County before last summer. And so going up there, we were like, oh, this would be really cool. We could have a boat. We could like go between Milwaukee and Door County and the boat. That would be, that would be fun. Um, I, I want to spend more time in San Francisco, um, which is I think not usually, it's not usually what people say when they move away from San Francisco, but, but I, you know, I, I loved living there and I have a lot of good friends who still live there. Um, and, you know, it makes sense for, for me, for my work to spend time in San Francisco. And so I don't know whether, what that will look like, if it'll just be, you know, short little business trips or kind of longer stays and, you know, Airbnbs or something like that, but definitely want to find ways to, to spend more time in San Francisco and not lose my, my connection to, um, to California. Um, and, uh, let's see what else. I don't know. That's about it. I, I want to write another book. Um, yeah, I don't have any ideas. I don't know what that book would be, but like, yeah, in principle, I would like to write another book and ideally I'd like to write it with Jake. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll add a, a, a personal one, which is that, I mean, these are all personal, but, but a, you know, totally personal one, which is that my sister who is two years younger than me, um, she, uh, and, and her husband, they lived in Los Angeles basically the whole time that we lived in San Francisco. And as we got to be like, you know, into our later twenties and early thirties, we, um, we got closer and closer and started spending a lot of time together. And, uh, and she actually, uh, moved perhaps temporarily, perhaps permanently to Wisconsin, um, last summer during the pandemic. Cause they were like living in an apartment in LA and she works for Netflix. And so she could work remotely. And so they're like, let's go to Wisconsin. So it's been really nice to have her um, close by and, and to have my, my brother-in-law close by too. Um, and uh, so they're, they're talking about whether they'll go back to LA or whether they'll stay, but, but that's kind of like, you know, staying close with them either physically or just, you know, staying in close, in close touch is another sort of, uh, it's not really a goal, but it's, it's, a, it's a priority for me. Well, if you ever write that book, we're definitely going to have you on if you're you're obliged. Um, by then, you. by then, this show is going to just be huge. You're going to be like, oh, the, I uh, hope that so. Is, that's the, that that's, is our goal. That's, that's, that's going to be like the Dax Shepherd of. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, thank you again for sharing your story. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming.